You're listening to Not Your Average CEO Lifeline with your hosts, Danielle Cuomo, CEO, Nicole Ells, COO, Chief Operations Officer, and Cassandra Blake, Virtual Operations Manager. We are here to provide you with a vital lifeline to executive advice that you've never heard before. We have the tools, the resources, and the tactics to help you reach the next level. Whether you're just starting out or have been in business for decades, Listen in for exclusive tips and content to suit your needs. Welcome back to another episode of Not Your Average CEO Lifeline. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Ian Robinson. Ian has developed a unique, controversial approach for fostering productivity. He has reframed the role of custom software from tactical tools to a continuous means of cultivating organizational expertise. Ian aims to give employees better days and professional services, a solid platform for sustainable growth. How exciting does that sound? I cannot wait to dive right into this. Ian, thank you again for agreeing to come on Not Your Average CEO Lifeline. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and a background as a CEO? Yeah, I've been running a software company now for 10 years. We celebrated our 10-year anniversary this year. And really, you know, I got into software a little bit reluctantly. My family was nice enough to put me through school, and I felt an obligation to pick a computer science degree, not because I thought sitting in front of a computer and uh, dealing with technical stuff all day was was my one true passion, but because I was good with computers, and uh, you know, I thought I could make a good career of it. And so I, I went through working you know, for other folks for several years, and um, my journey to starting my own business really came from all of these experiences uh, through university and through the early part of my career working for a software shop, a product company, a marketing team. And through all of those experiences, uh, a lot of them were great, but I also felt like something was missing. We'd show up and, and do, do technology, right? And we were concerned with business goals and outcomes. But the thing that was always missing for me was kind of the human spirit of the endeavor and how the software would actually impact people's emotions and daily lives in that way. And I think, you know, I maybe even didn't know it at the time, but starting out on that journey uh, of my own company, I was just like, I got a feeling, you know, I and we can do this better. And over the course of this last 10 years, it's really been become clear to me that trying to dig deeper into people's work lives and how organizations function, and then from that place of deeper understanding, trying to then put technology in place, you know, build software systems that really deeply serve the organization, it's like, that just really gets me going. <laughs> so I'm very excited uh, to be here, you know, 10 years in and uh, still, uh, you know. Well, that's, uh, that's amazing. And congratulations on 10 years. That's, thank you. Well, it's a decade. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. That's truly amazing. So, yeah. And I'd say too, um, being the leader doesn't necessarily come natural to me. And that's something I very much had to grow into. Um, 
And I'm still growing into, even after 10 years. It's been an exciting journey. <laughs> now I'm interested. So what do you mean that it, it didn't come natural to you? So how did you, how did you work at that? How did you become the leader? Really, for me, I'm more comfortable maybe behind the scenes just getting the work done. That's where I'm most comfortable, right? I, I don't crave attention in, uh, <laughs> in like standing in front of the room exactly. Although I realize that I'm good at it too. So it's been a little bit of a battle. You know, I, I kind of showed up a lot in different business environments, uh, different companies, different teams. I just kind of started ending up standing up in front of the room and knowing where what direction to go, even though <laughs> I wasn't super confident in it necessarily, but, um, or confident in my presentation skills and things of that nature, but I felt it, right? <laughs> so, mm -hmm. yeah. And it's definitely something to, you know, you went out of your comfort zone and look at where you are now, 10 years <laughs> in. I mean, that's a huge accomplishment. Can you tell us how to identify when your software systems are out of sync with your organizational expertise? Absolutely. One of my favorite subjects. <laughs> um, you know, maybe thinking about models is a good place to start with us too. Um, okay. We use models of the world for really every endeavor inside of a business. And then there's kind of software to serve that area of the business because software is ubiquitous. So think of maybe, you know, each business has an accounting function, a pretty large endeavor. Let's say QuickBooks maps to that pretty well. And you know, people can be frustrated with it, but all in all, it models the reality and is standard from one business to the next. When we get into expert businesses, the, this notion of expertise is kind of inherently unique or and fundamentally unique. Uh, so the way people do accounting might be slightly different here and there. Uh, but it's not, nobody's reinvent, like, <laughs> reinventing accounting with a completely different worldview, right? There's things that you have to be standardized on. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the world of organizations, corporations, uh, businesses that are providing expert services, so something that's consultative, strategic, you know, highly skilled, those folks really have their own worldview and they have their own model of how to transform a client's environment. And when your software is out of sync with that, what it looks like and feels like is uh, pain, right? Um, <laughs> frustration. Yeah. So, and th that shows up in, hey, we have a lot of trouble with adoption. You know, people aren't using the software as much as we'd like, or it's taking longer to onboard people, or we even delay onboarding people. Things like there's extra overhead and manual steps, workarounds that maybe only a few people know, general sense of uh, frustration. And of course, the, some of the biggest pain is when people make mistakes, right? So they're using their software day in and day out to get work done and to collaborate with their teams, and they miss something, you know, mm -hmm. again. I get a lot of, when companies show up at our door, so to speak, they're keenly aware of the problems, right? And they need help kind of sorting it out. So those sorts of mistakes and inconsistencies can show up in a really big way. Maybe one last one to throw in there is, is knowledge silos too. So if there's inconsistencies in how, you know, a project is conducted or how work is done, 
from maybe one team to the next or from one person to the next, then you know, a lot of really valuable information can accrue in one place and not really be distributed back into <laughs> other places. And it's interesting too, because I think a lot of company cultures have really normalized a lot of this pain. Mm. Um, people kind of expect software to be a pain in the butt, but <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't have to be that way, especially like in-house software or proprietary stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's just a product of you know time where we are in the industry and the you know legacy systems out there that aren't serving people as well or software as a service products uh, people take off the shelf and just use but it's it's really based in somebody else's worldview and it's good for some areas of your business but for others it's um well not optimal right <laughs> Right. That was wonderful. And I I definitely would have to agree with you that I think in this world, uh, especially, you know, a lot of companies being more remote that Mm. they expect, you know, software is just going to do what it's going to do. And within, you know, ours, we use a, um, a web base and on, on certain platforms and we know automatically, okay, it's going to glitch. Like we know it. And we, (laughs) we just, you know, we adapt to it instead of you know i mean yeah. we've been looking to to solve certain things but we find workarounds sure um, yep because you're very driven to get your work done and <laughs> you will find ways around it i think that's that's very common and you know another really interesting thing is that a lot of times when we come in and because we replace a lot of software systems you know mm-hmm. one's not working so we we build the, the good version right um the better version but uh people are have a hard time letting go of their workarounds because they were very hard won and it took skill and ingenuity and <laughs> practice and you know uh, it, it can be hard to let go of sometimes but um, right exactly or you know when you're looking for that replacement and you're you know you find that okay this could actually do it however you know you don't find that one platform that does mm. everything that you currently did so you're like okay well I'll just deal with the problems because you know there's nothing out there right now so you kind of just adapt like you said Mm -hmm. that's yeah maybe one other thing that I'd add to is on the topic of kind of people just getting used to things um you know we talk a lot about the pandemic shaking a lot of stuff up Mm -hmm. and uh, remote work is the probably the easiest one to talk about and kind of underlying that though is is this idea that people are realizing that we don't have to just do things the way they're done Mm -hmm. anymore, just kind of arbitrarily because that's the way they're done. And I think remote work is, is a good example of that. That really is going to, I think over time filter more deeply into organizations where people realize, well, we, you know, we don't, you know, and maybe my selfish example is that, uh, well, we don't have to put up with subpar stuff just because we have unique needs and we had to develop custom software. It doesn't have to be something that is inhospitable mm-hmm. uh, for our employees. Exactly. It's a great point. Speaking to that, can you actually create your own digital work environment? And if you can, how do you actually do that? So I think you can. Um, and I think we do, it's just really a matter of how intentional we are about it. 
and the leadership within an organization uh, is about it. And really, you know, a digital work environment is kind of all encompassing because, you know, we use Zoom, we use dozens and dozens of uh, software systems within any given organization, if not hundreds. And there are, again, pieces of that that are fine to, as part of my digital work environment that maps onto our organization's worldview and our operations. Bringing other people's software into it is, of course, a good thing, right? Because you can't build everything from scratch. But when you're stepping back and looking at your digital work environment, thinking of it like, okay, um, this is where you know, especially with people being remote, but even before that or in person, this is where my employees spend their time. This is where they their minds live here day in and day out. And so let's look at that really holistically. And then again, within that, if there are areas that are critical to your business, they're unique, long-lived, you know, that area that's your wheelhouse, that's your expertise, um, I think that it's it's really important to take a look at those areas and try to step back and see how well the software is, is serving you, because that really is an area where you want your model of the world to be operationalized for your employees now and over time. And the more employees you have and the longer running your business is, and the more critical this component of your business is the more important, really getting that, like closing as many gaps as you can. Mm. Um, it just becomes as, as well, kind of, well, let's just say very important. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing your insight on that. Absolutely. That was great. So to dive a little deeper into the digital work environment, how are the fields of like positive psychology and architecture Can they actually help us build better software and a healthier digital work environment? Absolutely. I think um, I have a long running interest in uh, a lot of different areas. And so architecture and psychology and specifically positive psychology in this uh, for this purpose. But uh, I think bringing these different disciplines and again, these different models of the world, like bringing them in from um, the outside into our own organizations Uh, is extremely helpful. It helps us reframe the endeavor and really kind of get deeper down into the workings of the business and uh, how to best serve the people uh, within that business uh, so they can then (laughs) serve clients. So positive psychology, the the part I like to steal from from them (laughs) is uh, this concept of flow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so positive psychology is really all about studying thoughts, feelings, and behavior, but it's more focused on strengths and, instead of weaknesses and building the good intentionally instead of just repairing the bad. So, and part of that is flow, trying to find flow, which one of the resources that I point to here is the organizational psychologist, Adam Grant, is a TED Talk where he talks about his Mario Kart theory of flow, and you'll have to watch the video at some point. But uh, the idea of flow is really being in the zone and being immersed. And it's what's, you know, kind of, you know, productivity overlapping with happiness 
Um, it's where those kind of meet, I would say. And so when we're looking at our digital work environments, we really wanna try to embrace this concept of flow. The components there that Adam, as Adam lays them out, are mastery, which is progress, basically. So you're, you're challenged and you're able to make progress and you feel like you're making progress. And this can be getting your work done <laughs> and getting it done well. So mastery and then mindfulness, which is focus. And focus is really having the space to do your thing, the space to work. So free of distractions and you know that your team, your leadership supports you in <laughs> creating that space to really get in it, do your work and focus. And the third component is mattering, which I think of you know, is really making a difference. So you have to know what your work is in service of. So in making a difference for people specifically, what are we trying to accomplish with this work? So I think just putting that concept of flow out there when you're evaluating your digital work environment and thinking about building software and how, or even adopting it, but you know, how are we gonna put tools in place to help people not just get their work done, but be focused and you know, help them understand how they're making a difference, you know, connect them to the end result, the end client. Uh, we don't want people to be completely disconnected and just off on their own. So there's a good summary here. It's just the state of flow is defined as a state of focused contentment in which one is fully immersed and energized. I, unfortunately, I'm not going to try to pronounce the author of that quote, but I can <laughs> I can send you it. And then the the piece that I like to steal from architecture, I can um, I also have a quote here from Nikos Salangaros. Mm -hmm. He says the key question in architecture is how to design a space that feels reassuring on at least an unconscious level. So I love that because when you are thinking about humans inhabiting space, you know, as individuals and as, as groups, you don't always need them to be wowed by their environment, but you do need them to feel comfortable and reassured that they're supposed to be there. We all know what it's like to be in a waiting room. <laughs> you're not, it's a waiting room. That's really, you're not supposed to be there. You're supposed to leave the waiting room. <laughs> and it it's really it can be uncomfortable right so the key question in architecture is if it's trying to just to reassure people at some unconscious at least an unconscious level i think that the same goes for any space that we're creating for people and i think it's very appropriate to think of software as a space we're creating for people again it's the place where people's minds spend their days and mm -hmm. yeah that's wonderful i mean i as soon as you gave the quote for architecture after explaining positive psychology i literally could see the two links and, <laughs> and that's that's wonderful because it you don't normally see the two together so with you explaining it to our audience it's like okay i can see that and <laughs> In regards to the information about the one who did about Mario Kart, well, of course I have to check it out because it was about Mario Kart. So just say <laughs> yes. It's it's a it's a you know most TED talks are very compelling because uh, they're designed they're engineered to be that way, uh, mm -hmm. but I think his is really good. So, what essential advice do you have 
for our listeners who are actually just starting out as a CEO or an entrepreneur? I'd say if you're just starting out as an entrepreneur and or on your kind of journey to CEO or your CEO uh, early on in your CEO journey, there's a lot of, I'd say, pressure and temptation to feel like you need to control everything and that you're responsible for everything. Mm-hmm. And I've found in my you know, CEO struggle uh, is really most of what CEOs are asked to do is kind of let go of control and not have all of the answers. And that could be really difficult for people in the transition because they're used to taking a lot of responsibility and action themselves. And I think, you know, there's delegation in there, um, of course, and there's, you know, hiring smart people and getting out of their way. Some great advice that I, (laughs) I received many years ago (laughs) and have done my best to follow. It's really important to get out of your own way too. And really that allows you to create space uh, for others to pursue the mission with you more deeply. That's what I tell folks that are that are just getting started. But that's wonderful advice. So thank you for sharing. Absolutely. My next question for you is a little outside uh, element here. What's one tool that you always carry in your toolbox, no matter what project you're working on? So... It is vague enough if I get to put my own uh, interpretation of tool in there that it is, I can bring it back and keep it in line with the rest of these questions (laughs) pretty easily. Of course, Um, absolutely. So I think, you know, when I was talking earlier about what's missing from a lot of, you know, just business endeavors and software endeavors specifically, um, just because that's the area that I focus on. We tend to remove considerations of people's emotions just to make things easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really, I think, does us a, a pretty big disservice in the long run. So the one, the one tool, no matter what project I'm working on, that I always try to bring to bear pretty deeply is just having some really basic compassion for the people that, are, that I'm working with. And the, you know, even if it's somewhat boring, uh, you know, practical, technical stuff behind the scenes, there's always somebody who feels something about it. And, you know, they don't have attention for it because they have other matters pressing um, and we have a dependency on them. You know, compassion is a wonderful tool. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, or if they're, deeply excited about it and want to take the driver's wheel away from our team and try to do everything themselves because they care about it so much. You know, again, compassion is a really helpful tool. And so really wherever we are on the spectrum, I think trying to get underneath what folks are asking for Mm -hmm. and understand that deeper context allows us to make better decisions and really focus on solving the right problem at the right level. And I I love how you chose compassion and not just like, you know, like your computer or like (laughs) cell or, you know, I think (laughs) compassion is, I think, wonderful, especially when you're working with a plethora of platforms and software and clients. And that was wonderful. So thank you for that. 
Absolutely. And if I had to pick something that's a little bit more in line, I would uh, pick, you know, a notebook and a pen. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, no, that, there's nothing wrong with that. I have that myself. <laughs> so, you know, that's something that I also learned pretty early on in my career, you know, before I even started my own business was it was it was kind of drilled into me, you know, never show up anywhere without paper and pen <laughs> in was, a business context. And I'm like, well, you know what? I think that's that's applicable in, in a life context. <laughs> and I would have to agree with you. I was actually given the same advice in college. And and I think it was more so, honestly, for the course, but I kind of like sure. adapted for life. But, um, but no, I would have to agree with you there. Just talking to you and, and going over your background and these questions, it's clear as day to me that you are are not your average CEO, but I'm interested to see how you find yourself not your average CEO. Yeah, I do. I think I identify with that pretty strongly. Um, I've always felt as a bit of an outsider because I've I've wanted to be guided by my own values and following my own, you know, so let's say inner voice and not really and trying to not overvalue the kind of more superficial expectations because you know the word CEO and that role and kind of the cultural baggage maybe that comes with it can be kind of overwhelming it puts a lot of expectations on people um, and you know a lot of folks out there might really try to judge you in a very narrow way when that's your role Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, being a <laughs> different than average CEO, uh, <laughs> really that's, that part really resonates with me of just, you know, the getting back to entrepreneurship that's maybe under, underneath a lot of, uh, the CEO's identity that's carving your own path, right? It's, it's striking out on your own. So there's always going to be tension between you know doing what other people expect you to do and meeting people with it where they are. Um, they have to understand you, uh, but also, you know, you're carving your own path. So following your own inner voice and maybe moving beyond the ambition in the early days that kind of gets you fired up and gets you going, mm. of, that's very clearly articulated, um, and actually, I have, I have another quote about ambition to share with you, if that's okay. Of course. So this is from uh, the poet David White, mm. uh, who's a favorite of mine. And uh, he has an essay on ambition. This is one. So he says, the ease of having an ambition is that it can be explained to others. The very disease of ambition is that it can be so easily explained to others. Mm. What is worthy of a life's dedication does not want to be known by us in ways that diminish its actual sense of presence. And I think that to me, that really speaks to the adventure that is entrepreneurship and is, you know, life, right? But we can have very clear measures of success for ourselves and hold on to those too tightly. And really, we are better served by have holding on to questions right maybe um and and exploring and um trying to find our way uh without being bogged down too much by other folks ex expectations of us i love that and i love that quote that was 
That was great. And it definitely summed it up because, because <laughs> honestly, like you stated is, you know, typically when you have the title CEO, you know, it's, you, there's a lot behind it and, you know, there's a, a, a big expectation of it. So it's, you know, you nailed it right on the head. So Ian, where can our audience find you? How can they work with you? How can they get in touch with you? Our website is enlivenhq.com. That's E-N-L-I-V-E-N-H-Q.com. And you can find me on LinkedIn. You just search for Ian Robinson. I'll pop up in there. And really, if anybody's interested in building some new software um, or just getting an opinion on the situation, uh, that's also a service that we provide. You can kind of do a, a quick deep dive, which sounds like a paradox, but we're, we're, we're getting pretty good at, at it after <laughs> the last 10 years. Um, but we can do a quick deep dive and really um, and help you understand where you are and, and how to get on track. We can be found, uh, you can reach me through the website and that's probably the easiest. Well, Ian, thank you so much for being a part of Not Your Average CEO. Do you have any last words of wisdom for our audience? Oh no, all my wisdom is completely spent, but thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful to talk to you, Cassandra. Thank you again for being an amazing guest. Thank you. You've been listening to Not Your Average CEO Lifeline with your hosts, Danielle Cuomo, CEO, Nicole Els, Chief Operations Officer, and Cassandra Blake, Virtual Operations Manager. This podcast has been sponsored by Virtual Assist USA. If you would like to know more about the hosts or exploring virtual assistant services, visit virtualassistusa.com for more information, free virtual guide magazines, access to networking groups, and much more.